0: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: Science Friday is supported by Random House. Publisher of When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi, A memoir from a doctor turned patient about the fragile beauty of our mortal lives. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kolonathy is available at prh.com air. WNYC Studios is supported by the Natural Resources Defense Council. Using science, the law, and people power, NRDC is committed to confronting the climate crisis, protecting public health, and safeguarding nature.
2: WNYC Studios. Listener
3: supported.
2: WNYC Studios.
3: This is Science Friday. I'm John Dankosky in for Ira Flato today. A bit later this hour, we're going to talk about how the brain controls movement and what that means for neuroscience as a whole. But first, imagine a globe that if you looked at it from one side, it was all land. And when you spun it around, it was all water. This week, astronomers report in the journal Nature that they've spotted a white dwarf. That's the dense inner core of a dying star. That's the stellar equivalent of that globe. This star has a surface that appears to be all hydrogen on one face, all helium on the other. Hmm. Joining me to talk about that and some other short subjects in science is Timothy Revel. He's deputy U.S. editor at New Scientist, and he's right here in our New York studios. Welcome back to the show, Tim. It's good to see you.
4: It's great to see you, too.
3: OK, so first of all, I guess, tell us more about this star, this weird star.
4: Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. So it's was spotted about 1300 light years away from earth and it rotates about once every 15 minutes Ah, and that means we get to see it's two different sides a lot (laughs) Um, and so there were researchers at the Zwicky transient facility in California they were looking at the sky just a standard observation of the sky and then they suddenly spotted this very strange looking star and as you say on one side it's completely helium On the other side, completely
3: hydrogen. So they found this just on a random sky scan, but I assume that they've confirmed this with some other fancy instruments by now. Yeah, exactly. So
4: they confirmed it with other telescopes and they confirmed it using spectrometry, which is a sort of chemical fingerprint of the star, and that allowed them to see what chemicals were mostly composed on the
3: surface. Okay, so they can see it, they can understand basically what it is, but do they know why this has happened?
4: Yeah, we don't know why it's happened. We know that with white dwarfs they can transition from being mostly helium to mostly hydrogen on the surface and that happens at a fairly regularly irregular occurrence. And so Maybe we've just caught it in the middle, we've caught it in a slightly strange moment. But what the uh, astronomers who spotted this reckon instead is that maybe that the magnetic field has slightly gone off kilter and it's uh, a bit stronger on one side than the other. And what would happen is that would mess with the internal convection inside the star, the sort of churning that happens of the gases, and then maybe that means that you end up with more helium on
3: one side and more hydrogen on the other. That's so interesting. Of course, there's so many space observers and space-interested folks in our listening audience. I'm sure that they're going to ask, can I look at it myself? Uh, I think it's going to be very difficult for you to see it yourself (laughs) unless you uh, have an amazing telescope.
4: But if you could see it, if you were right there and you could have a look at it, something that you would see is that it would be bluish and then the helium side would look a little grainy, and the hydrogen side would be very smooth. Uh, and do they think that there's any more of these things out there? We don't know. This is the first one we've ever spotted. Yeah. That's what's so amazing about it. We've never seen a two-faced star like yeah. this before. But now we know what it looks like, but potentially we can scan the skies for a few more, and maybe there's more out there, but certainly it seems rare.
3: That's very, very cool. Okay, so let's go to another story about chemical elements, uh, the form of carbon known as graphene. Why don't you tell me about this first?
4: Yeah, this, this this discovery absolutely blew my mind. So you might remember in two thousand and four that humans we created graphene, which is this uh, sort of wonder material that's a single layer of carbon. It's one atom thick, and it's meant to be incredibly strong, a hundred times stronger than steel, and it has amazing electroconductivity. But when we found it, we thought, well, we've just invented this now. This is an amazing new material. But what Go has, humans. Yeah, go humans. But now it <laughs> seems like nature has, has gone into the lead. It turns out nature <laughs> discovered graphene at least 3.2 billion years ago. And we've only just found that out now. Interesting. Okay, so how? first of all, how exactly did they find this out? Yeah, so there, researchers were just looking in this gold mine in South Africa. And under some rocks was a sort of interesting looking material. They took it back to the lab and looked at it under a microscope. And they were pretty shocked to find out that Graphene, this amazing material, there it was in this mine.
3: Uh, so so we now have learned how to make graphene ourselves. Does it... I don't know, does it get us anything fancy because we're able to get it in nature now? Yeah, so this is what's
4: particularly interesting about the discovery, other than just the, like, the scientific wonder of it, is that graphene was originally discovered with some graphite from a, graphite from a pencil and some sticky tape, a really basic way of making it. But because it's such an amazing material, we want to be able to make it in vast quantities. And the industrial processes for making them use extremely high temperatures, up to about 800 degrees. 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. And with this naturally occurring graphite, uh, graphene, sorry, it seems that it uh, occurred from a combination of bacteria dying and then undergoing some chemical reactions. But these chemical reactions occur only at about 500 degrees Fahrenheit. So much, much cooler. So maybe we'll find a much uh, more energy efficient way to make this amazing material off the back of it
3: but it was found in a gold mine is this something that you can mine for yeah potentially it's like such
4: early stages at this point that they've just you know they've got a few little samples they've got some graphene there the graphene seems to be slightly different to the graphene that we have created in the lab it's a slightly different colour so maybe it's got some other elements in it but Yeah, I think most likely is that it will inform how we can make it on an industrial scale, but mining is certainly not ruled out at this point. Very
3: interesting. Okay, so later this hour, we're going to be talking about the brain and how it directs the movement of our body. But there's some other brain news this week, and it's about consciousness and what exactly it might be in the brain. What can you tell us that this is a big idea? (laughs) Yeah, it's a really big idea. And so any progress
4: on this, even if it's small, seems like big progress. And what we have now is a stronger evidence for one of the explanations potentially for how consciousness arises in the brain. And so there are many competing ideas about consciousness and how it arises, but one of them is called IIT, and that stands for Integrated Information Theory. It's a pretty technical and very maths-heavy theory, but one of the things it says is that when two things interact, if that produces more information than there was at the beginning of the interaction, that is consciousness, that is like the beginnings of consciousness. And so researchers have now tested this theory to see whether it does uh, work in the way that IIT predicts. And what they did was they looked at brain scans from 17 people in four different states of consciousness. There was awake, mildly sedated, unconscious, and in a recovery stage from an anesthetic. And what they found was this uh, sort of calculation that you can do in IIT, which produces a number called phi. They found that uh, it relates to consciousness in the way that you would expect. So higher consciousness increases with phi, and then consciousness also decreases when you've got a lower number.
3: When you're talking about that, the first thing I think about is it seems like a a fairly, in some ways, simple formulation that could apply to animal consciousness. It could apply to machine consciousness, I suppose. Yeah, this is the thing about the um, theory is that
4: it only tells you about these interactions between like two things. And then maybe you can build them up to a higher level. But the brain consists of billions of neurons. (sighs) And the mathematics is so complicated that we can really only perform the calculations at the moment for a few components. And so what they did in this study was they worked out a way in which you can simplify the brain to sort of look at regions rather than the neurons itself. And that matched the theory but it's such like, it's so complicated that it's really just like a bit of inching forward potentially this is the strongest theory we have for consciousness, but it's a long way yet before it'll be proven.
3: Yeah, I was going to say it's a long way before it can be proven. This is something we've been thinking about as humans for quite some time. So the debate is not settled here.
4: No, it's not settled. There are other people who think there are other stronger theories, but this is some new evidence that we didn't have before.
3: So there's some news this week out of Stanford University. Really interesting news uh, that the Stanford University president has had to resign following an ethics probe, and it's a science ethics probe. Tell us what's going on here. Yeah, so Stanford president
4: is Mark Tessier-Levine, and he's a pretty notable neuroscience, neuroscientist who's published more than 200 papers on degenerative brain disease. But he said he's now going to resign after an independent report concluded his research contained, and this is a quote, multiple problems and fell below customary standards of scientific rigour. So, the report, it looked at, it took in 50 interviews and had over 50,000 documents as part of, of the report. And they said that the Stanford president's labs had inappropriately manipulated research data. And in several instances, he himself hadn't taken proper steps to correct
3: mistakes. My goodness, this, this is quite a story which will continue to follow. Uh, let's go to some animal news, Tim. Uh, two new species of saber toothed cats have been discovered. This is interesting.
4: Yeah, this is amazing. Um, so, Sabre-toothed cats, they roamed the earth from about 56 million years ago to about 10,000 years ago. And we already know that there were about two dozen species that we know of. And so researchers are still trying to work out exactly which saber-toothed species lived where and when. And so a team re-examined a large collection of fossils from near Cape Town in South Africa. Um, And those fossils actually were originally unearthed 40 decades ago, but they've just had another look at uh, four decades ago. And they've just had another look at them. And uh, from the team's analysis, they were able to identify two medium sized saber tooth species that were different from any of the others that we know of. Interesting. Okay. so and, and so this is a really important thing. Yeah, it's a really important thing, and like we know a little bit about from this analysis what the saber-toothed cats would have been like. So one of the species, we could tell from the sort of shape of its skull that it was probably a bit like a leopard and hunted prey in the forests, whereas the other one was much more of a runner, and it sort of hunted like a cheetah, which is an absolutely terrifying prospect, a, a, a cheetah super... with saber tooth <laughs> fangs coming at you.
3: I, I can't even imagine. It actually uh, stirs the imagination a bit. Okay, before we run out of time, we're heading into the weekend here, and if you've been considering a fruity drink of some sort, uh, you've brought us a story about alcohol in tropical fruits. OK, tell us about this. Yeah, this is great. So plants in tropical forests,
4: they seem to have a pretty cunning technique for luring mammals to eat their fruits and distribute their seeds. And it's a technique that often works for humans, too. And it's alcohol. So it seems that uh, there was a, these researchers and they collected a wide range of fruits from a Costa Rican uh, rain, a Costa Rican tropical forest. And then they sampled the alcohol content of all these different fruits. And they found 80% of them had some noticeable alcohol in them. But then when they looked at which animals ate which fruits, they found that those with higher levels of alcohol were much more likely to be eaten by mammals. <laughs> so I, in some ways, that's not surprising, right? Yeah, so the alcohol it comes from like this uh from natural yeast turning the sugars into alcohol and so the fruits in which that happens most are the ones that are ripest the ones that have the most sugar and ultimately the ones that have n- the most nutrition so maybe that's what enticing the animals that could be the taste of alcohol
3: it, it, it could be the taste I mean how much alcohol are we talking about are we talking about like sort of little tipsy monkeys <laughs> in the in the jungle here we're talking about a very low amount of alcohol so the
4: highest uh concentration of alcohol in any of these fruits was in the hog plum, which I've never oh. tasted before, but I would be up for trying. And that one had 1.5% 1. alcohol, and most of them were much lower. So oh, I think only very small animals that eat a lot of fruit would really be noticing the <laughs> intoxicating effects.
3: You, you've never had hog plum brandy? It's such a delicacy. <laughs> well, I must, I must have it with you sometime. <laughs> Thanks for bringing us all these stories, Tim. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Tim Revel is deputy US editor at New Scientist. Uh, we've got to take a break here. When we come back, a breakthrough in our understanding about how the brain controls movement in our bodies. And we're going to be taking your phone calls as well.
1: WNYC Studios is supported by the Natural Resources Defense Council. Using science, the law, and people power, NRDC is committed to confronting the climate crisis, protecting public health, and safeguarding nature. They address the impact of fossil fuels on communities and our environment. They help protect wildlife, public lands, and irreplaceable ecosystems that all living things depend on. They work to enact policies for clean air, clean water, and access to nature for all. You can help NRDC safeguard the earth for future generations. Visit NRDC.org WNYC for more information.
5: Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently,
3: 844-724-8255. That's 844 SciTalk. talk We're going to be right back after this short break. This is Science Friday. I'm John Dankosky. I want you to now become hyper aware of what you're doing right now. Are you driving? Are you washing the dishes? Are you going for a walk? Odds are you weren't really thinking about what you were doing until I like just asked you. Every little action that your body takes has to be dictated by your brain, from your eyes scanning the space in front of you to your legs moving one in front of the other. And this all usually happens without really thinking much about it at all. So this is a very complicated process in the brain and one that still has a lot of mysteries to it. We'll try to unpack some of those mysteries with two researchers today. Dr. Evan Gordon is assistant professor of radiology at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis and Dr. Michael Graziano is Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience at the Princeton Neuroscience Institute in Princeton, New Jersey. I'd like to welcome you both to Science Friday. Hello. Hello. Thanks thank so- you very much for having me on, John. Of course. Thank you for being here. And we're going to take some of your listener questions as well. What do you want to know about how the connections are made between our brain and our body? If you have questions, give us a call. Our number is 844-724-8255. That's 844-SY-TALK, or you can always tweet us at sci So, Michael, I want to start with you, and maybe we should start with an explanation of a really important part of the brain. This is the motor cortex. Give us a basic idea of what
2: exactly it is and what it does. Right. So, there is a part of the cortex. The cortex is this all-important outer uh, layer of the brain, uh, and It's a part of the cortex that controls movement. And it was really the first part of the cortex that was understood in any way at all. It's kind of the beginning of modern neuroscience. A little more than 100 years ago, in 1870, it was discovered. And uh, what what happens is there's a kind of a, a strip of tissue. And the traditional view is that each spot in it connects to a part of the body and controls movement uh, controls muscles in that part, so it's kind of a uh, a map, if you will, that controls movement. That's the general idea of the motor cortex.
3: And how big is the motor cortex area of the
2: brain? It's n- it's not as big as you might expect. In. <laughs> in, uh, in um, Humans, especially, where we have so much of the rest of the brain taken up by high-level cognitive functions, it's squeezed up a bit. It's a narrow strip. It's only a couple centimeters wide um, and uh, maybe uh, five times as, as long.
3: Okay, so so not very big. Maybe you can just walk us through this, Michael, so we understand. If I'm reaching for a cup of coffee, or I've got some water in front of me, and I'm reaching for this cup. What exactly is happening in my brain? Maybe you can just map this out for us a little bit so we get an understanding of how this works.
2: Right. So we know certainly there's a whole pattern of muscle activity that allows you to do that. That muscle activity ultimately is coordinated in your spinal cord, which has enormously rich, complicated uh, networks in it. Many people don't realize the spinal cord is smarter than most animals out there. Hmm. It's a a very uh, computation-heavy part of the body. Then the spinal cord is under direct control by the motor cortex. And so the motor cortex, in effect, is controlling this set of simpler algorithms in the spinal cord and uh, giving somewhat higher level commands that allow your uh, limbs to move. And exactly how the motor cortex works has been in some contention. The, The simpler traditional ideas are Uh, clearly not 100% right. And so uh, that's been the topic of very exciting ongoing research.
3: Yeah. And we're going to talk about some of that research now. I I want to turn to you, Evan. Uh, We've known about the motor cortex for a while. Uh, As a radiologist, what you do is you do scans and you look at people's brains and you've found something interesting in some scans having to do with the motor cortex. Why don't you tell us about these findings?
0: That's right, John. We found that the motor cortex, which uh, Michael has so eloquently described, has somewhat of a different organization than what science and medicine have believed for 90 years. Um, We see that the motor cortex, in addition to containing these different areas controlling different parts of your body, it also seems to control this previously unknown set of areas, uh, networked areas, strongly interconnected, that it looks like it allows complex planning areas of your brain to influence whole body actions. So, you know, as Michael described, for a long time we believed that in the motor cortex there's this smooth progression as you get from sort of the top middle part of the motor cortex to the bottom lateral side part of the motor cortex that controls one part of your body, then the other, then the next, then the next, moving from your toes and your feet to your arms and your hands, to your face and your tongue, and that each of these regions acts kind of in isolation to control the movement of its particular body part that it cares about. But we found out that when we go and map individual human brains in great detail, this isn't quite true. Mm -hmm. So certainly, yes, there are these areas that control the feet and the hands and the face, but in between these three known areas, we found three other unusually strongly interconnected regions. The the face area and the hand area, they don't connect to each other. They don't act together very much. But these three other areas we found in between, they seem like they do strongly act together. And they act together not just in response to movements of specific body parts, but to many different types of movements, and especially to movements of your core body. And the other really interesting thing about them is they seem to be strongly connected to areas in prefrontal cortex uh, that are responsible for planning and decision-making, what we think of as the smartest areas of the brain. These areas that we think of as just dumb, motor, (laughs) move-your-body-part areas are strongly connected to these smart planning areas. And finally, it seems like these areas correspond to regions that in the monkey brain are known to connect directly to internal organs like your stomach or your adrenal medulla. So this is sort of a complicated set of findings, but we think that this this new system represents a circuit that enables whole body actions, not just isolated movements of your fingers, like if you're playing a piano, or even if you're talking and you need to move your tongue in these very complicated ways, but we think about whole body actions like dancing or like sports And this system allows these whole-body actions to be strongly influenced by your plans and your goals and the potential connection to these internal organs might allow changes in your adrenaline or your heart rate even before you start an action, sort of anticipatory changes.
3: It, I, it, in some ways, that sort of sounds like good news, I suppose, for humans who who plan things in advance. I, I, I want to ask a little bit more about the, the scans and what you found. But first of all, Michael, I'm just wondering if you could respond. I mean, how much does this upend what we've thought about the motor cortex previously?
2: Well, uh, that's a really good question. The motor cortex field, because it's so old, is, in a sense, fraught with a great deal of tradition. And the tradition is, on a regular basis, uh, kind of um, bashed, and it seems to be toppling, and then it kind of recovers itself. And so every so often, you find studies that show uh, that the traditional view is not correct. Um, And so, for example, a little more than 20 years ago, my own lab found uh, evidence that the map The traditional map of muscles, so-called homunculus, the little body in the brain, uh, is not correct, and that there's a great deal of intercoordination between muscles and a sort of rich, holistic approach to movement control. Um, And so uh, there's that. The traditional map is is clearly not correct. Exactly how it's not correct uh, and exactly what is correct, that's um, really up to discovery. And I think that the... um, this recent study is is fantastic. It's a, it's amazing, and it really begins to show that the motor cortex is not just about controlling uh, what are called s- s- skeleto movements or um, movements of your basic joints, but can also uh, can, uh, be involved in internal organs and internal body states, and linked to higher cognition. So this is really amazing. It it does uh, put a dent in the traditional view. I wish the traditional view had. Um, a little more dense in it,
3: <laughs> <laughs> and this may well indeed be a a, a dent. Um, so, Evan, talk about some of these involuntary movements, things like things like breathing, my heart pumping. What do we know about how that's mapped in, into the brain, as opposed to the the things that I'm planning to do or the things that I'm trying to do with my with my arms and fingers at any one time?
0: Well, we don't know that much about how. Uh, sort of these involuntary movements like uh, like uh, breathing and heart rate are regulated. We think that, we the traditional view has been that we think that these are regulated more by very low-level systems, mostly in your stem, But it's always been a, a question in my mind, well, okay, if these are sort of just dumb areas of the brain that are regulating your heart rate and your breathing, how is it that... When I'm thinking about things that I'm going to do, when I'm thinking about something that's going to be difficult or anxiety producing, I have to give a big talk in front of a a big crowd. uh, Tomorrow, it's not even today, it's tomorrow, I'm thinking about giving this talk. And my, my heart rate accelerates, my breathing starts changing, I start sweating. Uh, why is it that this, that just our thoughts can, sh- and can t- cause these changes in our, our autonomic body systems? This is where I think we have to look to cortex. We have to look to these very smart areas of cortex and understand how our planning, not doing actions, but planning might be connected to, uh, uh, in, in more direct ways to our autonomic body functions.
3: And I want to get to some phone calls now. We've got a lot of questions from our listeners. 844-724-8255. Let's go to Jim who is calling from California. Hi there, Jim. You're on Science Friday. Oh okay. Uh, you hear me okay? Sure can, Jim. Yeah. Oh, okay, good. I no, I i was wondering what the chemistry is there to motivate somebody. You know, when you make the the conscious choice to do something What motivates you to do it, especially if there's, like, risk involved or, or um, you know, some other challenge of painting that might be that you have to overcome? What is that chemistry that, uh, that motivates you past all those, you know, seemingly barriers? It's an interesting question, Jim, thank you. I'll, I'll put you on hold so you can listen to our experts. I don't know Michael or Evan if what you think about this I mean, if we're talking about planning, we're also talking about all sorts of motivations that people have to do various things.
2: I mean That's I could take exact- a oh, yeah. oh go, ahead. go ahead i I, I was going to take a quick stab at it. yeah uh, one of the wonderful things about the the brain as people study it further is that there are a very large number of different networks that do different things, yet all coordinate with each other. And so when you're talking about control of movement, that seems to be one network. You're talking about deciding, um, decision-making, cognition that allows you to decide what is the right thing to do. That's perhaps another network. Uh, And yet there's a third uh, system in the brain which involves uh, motivation, uh, emotional-motivated states. And so all three of those need to interact with each other in order uh, to to accomplish the kinds of things that the um, that the caller is talking about. Did you
0: did you yes, have other thoughts? I, I think ahead. Michael I think Michael's exactly right here. And we've been thinking in our work we've been thinking about this a lot because we've been trying to map out some of these uh, big brain networks that seem to do these different sorts of things. And one of the one of the things that we've observed is that. these, These planning decision areas I've been talking about that have this surprising connection to motor cortex, we've been trying to look into where they get their inputs from, and as the caller might have guessed, they seem to have inputs from systems that provide they have inputs from several different systems. One of them seems to be systems that provide motivation. They get reward information and they decide on the value of that reward and they project that value judgment backwards into this decision-making system. Mm -hmm. And then another input to this decision-making system seems to be some of these networks that do very complicated cognition. If If you need to do math, if you need to think through a series of logical steps this is the brain network that does that. And this brain network also provides input to this decision-making system. And then this decision-making system projects right backward into implementing these whole-body actions in the uh, what we thought of as the motor cortex... Uh, So I I think that that the caller's instinct is very right that all of these different inputs are weighed and judged in these certain decision-making areas of the brain.
3: Hmm. We're talking about the brain-body connection, and this is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. And we'll get to some more of your phone calls in just a moment at 844-724-8255. So, Michael, in my other life, away from radio, I'm a yoga teacher. I've practiced yoga for years, and one of the things we talk about a lot in yoga is proprioception, you know, the sense that we can tell how our body's moving, where it is in space. It's something that's really different for everyone. I guess I'm wondering with with what we know about the motor cortex, how it is that people sense where their body is and how their body's moving much differently from person to person. Like not everyone knows exactly what it means to hold both arms parallel to to the floor, for instance. How exactly does that work out in the motor cortex?
2: Right. Uh, Another super good question. Uh, The sense of your body configuration and body movement in space uh, is partly uh, involved with the motor cortex. There's a large number of other areas that are involved in that. And what you're talking about is sometimes called the body schema. So the body schema is the brain's essentially simulation or model that uh, a picture that it builds for itself of what your body is doing, where your limbs are. And that that body schema is very complex. It's not just sensors in your joints telling you where your arms are. That's a very small part of it. Another part of it is vision. You see where your arms are. So vision has to connect to your um, sense of uh, your joint sense. Another part of it is uh, your commands, your motor commands, if you tell your arm to move to the right, well, it's probably somewhere on the right. Uh, And another part of it has to do with just general knowledge that you've uh, unconsciously learned about how your body is jointed and put together. So all of these things come together in this big complex mix uh, in order to allow you to know intuitively where your body parts are, how they're moving. Uh, And that's something that is trainable, learnable, and so you're quite right. People who do yoga, people who do dance, uh, train up on this and become really good at it much better uh, than, than people who aren't so well trained on it.
3: And we have a little less than a minute left, but, but that's important, right? This is something that's trainable. This is something that we can, we can make work better in this connection between our brain and our body.
2: Yes, it is trainable.
3: I, I want to let our listeners know that we're talking with Dr. Michael Graziano, who's a professor of uh, psychology and neuroscience at the Princeton Neuroscience Institute in Princeton, New Jersey, and we're also talking with Dr. Evan Gordon, assistant professor of radiology at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. We're talking about the connection between the brain and the body, some new research into the motor cortex, trying to figure out how exactly this stuff works. We'll even be
1: talking about some mindfulness techniques and taking a look. WNYC Studios is supported by the Natural. Re- You can help NRDC safeguard the earth for future generations. Visit nrdc.org WNYC for more information.
5: Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now,
3: so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Out of your phone calls at 844-724-8255. That's 844 sy We'll be right back in just a minute. This is Science Friday. I'm John Dankosky in for Ira today. We're talking this hour about some of the connections between our brain and our body. We're talking with Dr. Evan Gordon and Dr. Michael Graziano, and we're taking some of your phone calls. Let's go to Peter, who's calling from Florida. Go ahead, Peter. You're on Science Friday. Yeah, you know, three days ago was the anniversary of Nadia Comaneci
0: getting those perfect tens. So what I'm asking is, how long will it be before you can do to my motor cortex make me a great gymnast?
6: You know what I mean. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of like the, remember the, the six million dollar man or whatever.
3: When can we do that with people? Yeah, it's a really it's a really good question. I think something that a lot of people are thinking about as they listen to this conversation, Michael. What do you say to our caller?
2: Uh, I I think that you know when you're young, that's when your uh, your brain is most. Um, Changeable, most learnable, most plastic, and unfortunately, by the time we get older, I think that plasticity is at least reduced. So, uh, but it's still there. You can actually, with intense training, you can actually improve skills. As for getting all the way up to the Nadia level of skill, I don't know. That that's something you start very young. Well, and maybe, Evan,
3: it's something that we can't exactly replicate an Olympic athlete later in our life, but it does speak to the idea, since we're talking about this being trainable, it is something that maybe we can all do just a little bit better. Maybe not to get to the Olympics, but maybe just to stand on our two feet a little bit stronger.
0: I I agree. I think that... I think that when you when you start thinking about improving your motor function, improving your motor abilities, there's no substitute for you have to go out and practice because practicing, actually doing it, the act shapes your motor cortex and it refines it. There is a question, could we help accelerate that shaping? Could we help you learn to do it faster? You know, there's amazing new brain stimulation techniques uh, coming out transcranial magnetic stimulation where you can activate the brain a little bit by magnetic fields. There's new techniques coming out where you can use ultrasound, like low intensity, uh, sound waves directed at your cortex to increase or decrease the activity of your brain. Could we maybe use some technologies like that to accelerate this learning process? We don't know how to do it now, but it's not a crazy idea.
3: Let's get to another phone caller here. Valentina is calling from Chicago. Uh, Valentina, go ahead. You're on Science Friday. Oh, Valentina's not there anymore. Michael has a question, actually, that's not too terribly dissimilar. So let's go to Michael in Albuquerque. Hi there, Michael. Hey, how you doing, John? Doing quite well. What's your question?
6: Um, My question is this. Uh, I am a stroke survivor from February of this year. And, of course, I had a systemic stroke on the right side that affected my left side. And you had uh, the speech. I had the weakness on the, on the left arm and the right leg. And then my question is basically, what does that have to do with the repairing, like restoring your speech and restoring the use of your faculties once you have the stroke? How does the, um, the brain or the cortex repair itself uh, to get back to normal?
3: Great, great question. Evan, what can you tell them? That's a
0: wonderful question. Um, <clears throat> we don't know the exact mechanisms of of this repair of how the brain is that the term is plastic. It can it can change its function a little bit to compensate for large losses in in functional areas. What we do know in uh, for stroke, motor stroke in particular, is that the way that the brain starts compensating for loss of function mirrors the original organization. So you may have experienced something where, where although you have lost, and many people experience this, although you've lost your hand function, maybe originally you lost the function of your entire arm, the first thing that starts coming back is maybe your shoulder function. And then maybe a little after that, your elbow function starts coming back. That's a common experience in people who have strokes and lose uh, arm function. Um, but often, <clears throat> the recovery doesn't get all the way to the hand. They never quite recover hand function. Um, and we believe that the reason for that is because of the, the organization of the motor cortex. If you look at how it's organized, <clears throat> the, the shoulder is the farthest away from the hand, but closest to these, these new in between areas that we found um, uh, it goes shoulder and then elbow and then wrist and the hand. And if you have a stroke that really destroys your hand function, it may have affected your wrist and your shoulder, but it's po- we think it's possible that these new in between areas in the motor cortex may be able to start taking progressively taking over the function of the the proximal the nearby lost areas so they can maybe first take over the function of the shoulder and then take over the function of the elbow. Unfortunately, they rarely get to take over the function of the hand.
3: But, but the, the discovery of these new in-between areas gives us a chance to maybe try new therapies, new ways of actually solving the problems that people have post-stroke. Absolutely. Very interesting. L- let's go to uh, another phone call. We have Lynn, who is calling from Indiana. Hi there, Lynn. You're on Science Friday.
6: Hi. Um, my question is, my father recently passed away, and he suffered from Alzheimer's at the end of his life. And as I listen to you, um, one of the things that I'm, I'm thinking of is what we noticed was from early, early on that actually it was his motor motor things went down as much, but the, the common therapy right now concentrates on their higher-level skills, you know, their memory and things like that. But I'm wondering that with this knowledge that you have, that maybe that's what we should be looking at, because I would, can also tell you that the more active my dad was, the better the rest of his skills of his brain worked. Hmm. So I'm wondering how this could apply to Alzheimer research.
3: It's a really good question, Lynn, and I'm sorry to hear it about, about your father. My, Michael, what what can you tell Lynn? Thank you.
2: Uh, I, I think probably, actually, Evan would know way more about this as a neurologist. Yeah, Evan? I, I, yeah.
0: So absolutely. Um, <clears throat> it, it is a really good question. And of course, the reason that, you know this, the reason that they were focusing so much with your father on, uh, on focusing on these cognitive skills is that in Alzheimer's, those are most commonly lost. Uh, the areas that are first affected in Alzheimer's are far away from the motor cortex. They're especially in areas having to do with memory, and the sense of time, and the sense of yourself, and uh, also the sense of navigation. These, they're, they're not very related to motor cortex. They're not very strongly connected to the motor cortex, but there is a lot of variability in something like Alzheimer's. And uh, even while most people may have this really primary memory deficit where their motor function is relatively spared for a long time, that's not the case for everyone. And certainly, as you experienced, there are individual cases where motor cortex may be degrading as fast as the cognitive function. Now, your idea about uh, if we can help recover the motor function, maybe it can help recover the cognitive function. That is, it's a great idea. It's, <clears throat> it's something that's intuitive to us because I think uh, we all sort of understand how um, uh, when we are active, it can help us think better. It helps us regulate our emotions better. It helps us concentrate better. This is a well-known uh, phenomenon. And I think that this, this these sets of circuits that we've identified here is a potential mechanism how this may be happening. As you engage your body in motion, there may be feedback mechanisms back to these higher level cognitive areas that allow them to... Uh, uh, activate better, to engage better, um, and while they probably wouldn't be slowing the, the progress of Alzheimer's, which is, is a very difficult problem that is not solved, they, it may very well be that physical activity may help for a little while you, uh, engage your brain enough that it can overcome the deficits mm-hmm. that, the, that the disease is causing.
3: It's so interesting. And again, Lynn, thank you so much for your question. Uh, Michael, I want to get back to something that you talked about earlier. There's this kind of foundational concept in neuroscience called the homunculus. Maybe you can just describe exactly what this is and why it's become so prevalent in our understanding of the brain.
2: Right. So the the term, the homunculus, was introduced by the uh, neurosurgeon Penfield in the um, 1930s. And he uh, he's the one who who mapped the motor cortex in humans. He didn't discover it. It had been discovered uh, 70 years before his time, but he mapped it thoroughly in humans, and he um, noted this uh, apparent map of muscles that, if you drew it on a, a piece of paper, looked a bit like a distorted body with really big hands and a really big face. Uh, you know, the parts of the body that are controlled uh, in finer detail have greater representation in the cortex. And so he called it the homunculus. And um, that was a a very clever bit of PR, and that term has stuck. And now (laughs) everyone, even non-neuroscientists, have heard of the homunculus. Uh, And so that's kind of the basis of how people have thought about the motor cortex. Um, And, of course, it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, because there's also a widely... um, Mocked, let's say, a straw man view of the brain. The way people function is that there's a little man in your head that makes you move. And the reason why that makes so little (laughs) sense is because then what makes the little man move? Does he have a little man in his head too? And so the homunculus concept is, uh, in some sense, quite funny. But uh, for the motor cortex, it made a great deal of sense for many, many decades the homunculus is just much more complicated than a simple map of the body, it turns out.
3: Yeah, it's it's sort of a funny idea to think about. It's also funny looking. It's like a little goblin with huge hands. If you see it embodied a big tongue and mouth and big ears, it's supposed to represent how much brain space is being used for the different body functions. So Michael, is this not true anymore? I mean, do we not believe in this homunculus model at this point?
2: Well, the basics that you just described are absolutely true. It's just that... In the motor cortex, it was once thought that every muscle had a little spot in cortex. And if you poked that spot, it would make that muscle twitch. And that turns out not to be true. The cortex basically learns really rich, coordinated um, interconnections between uh, muscles and body parts and helps coordinate movement. And you know, we have found, for example, you can poke a spot in the motor cortex and cause a uh, behavior as complex as the hand closes into a grip. The grip moves to your mouth and your mouth opens. All of those things happening in coordination so, uh, because there's, uh, uh, the network in the motor cortex has learned that kind of rich coordination. So what's, that, um, what's in debate is exactly how this is implemented in the motor cortex. But there's no doubt that different body parts have uh, different amounts of of representation in the brain. That basic idea is absolutely correct.
3: This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. And we want to get to some more phone calls about the brain-body connection. Jennifer is calling from Durham. Go ahead, Jennifer, you're on Science Friday.
6: Hey thanks for taking my call. So I am a a congenital amputee. I was born with a limb difference and my husband and I own a small prosthetic company in Durham and I spent a lot of my time visiting folks that are new to amputation in the hospital following their surgery and just working with people through the rehabilitation process. And so a lot of people that experience um, amputation experience something called phantom limb sensation um, or phantom limb pain essentially even though that part of the limb that is no, it's no longer there but you are still feeling like it's there and it could just be a feeling of like twitching in a foot that's not there or uh, severe pain and not everybody gets it not everybody experiences that it sort of depends on the circumstances around your limb loss and um, and so when I talk to people about that, I usually say, I frame it as in, like, your brain has a map of your body. Mm-mm. And now that that part of your body is gone, your brain, it takes a while to really adjust to that and for your brain to understand that. And that's what you are experiencing is a misfiring of your brain. And, you know, as you begin the prosthetic rehabilitation, you know, That also helps mapping the new map of your brain Mm -hmm. and right now prosthetics are typically not you know they're not directly integrated with your nervous system that's certainly like the future of prosthetics Um, but all the things that you're talking about proprioception you know balance um, it, it takes practice and so people find it's very difficult at first to use a prosthesis but throughout the process that brain is is reforming right the map is reforming and that's why people eventually progress and mm-hmm. feel like oh this prosthesis is like part of my body now i just thought it was something to bring up
3: i think it's in a community yeah <laughs> it's a very important thing to bring up i'm so glad you did jennifer and evan i don't know if you want to build a bit on what jennifer had to say
0: i think that jennifer is describing it extremely well um this is exactly the right way to think about it the when you have an amputation you have a part of your sensory cortex which is organized a lot like the motor cortex where it it has different parts of it that are mapped to different uh, parts of your physical body that part of your brain has completely lost its input what is it going to do neurons don't know what to do when they lose their inputs they start firing randomly everything that they were expecting is messed up the, the, the neurons themselves, they're, they're organized in a very complex uh, recurrent network. Different neurons are, are, are pointing to each other. They've all lost their inputs. They're all pointing randomly at each other. They're causing random firing all over the place. It's, it's, it's complete confusion, and uh, that can be easily, easily interpreted as pain. And the, the, re, that representation of that missing body part needs to be what's called, it needs to be remapped. It, and that is exactly what this rehabilitation process that Jennifer is talking about is intended to do. It's intended to make this remapping process go as fast as possible. You have this part of your brain that was mapped to this missing part of your body. Can we try to remap that part of your brain to something else that is intact, that is still getting input, and so that this input doesn't, doesn't come, uh, that, that there's not this lack of input in this crazy activation, which is very unpleasant
3: interesting stuff. There's so much more to talk about and so many more questions, but we've just about run out of time. I want to thank Dr. Evan Gordon, assistant professor of radiology at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. Thank you so much, Evan.
0: Thank you so much, John. I loved being
3: on here. And Dr. Michael Graziano, a professor of psychology and neuroscience at the Princeton Neuroscience Institute in Princeton, New Jersey. Thank you so much, doctor. Thank you. And before we go this hour, we could not let this Friday pass without marking the extraordinary life and career of jazz singer Tony Bennett, who died this morning in New York at the age of 96. Now, among his many hits was this very lush 1965 recording of a song that became synonymous with the Apollo missions. Now, Tony's moon mission, as you'll hear, is just a little bit slower than that of his fellow traveler, Frank Sinatra.
4: Fly! And let me play
3: among the stars. Rest in peace, don't Now we had help this week from a lot of folks, including experiences let manager Diana Montano, controller Beth Ramy, Grants Manager light. Jordan Smudgick and Jason Rosenberg, and I'm audio too engineers too Lisa Gosselin and Kevin Wolf. BJ Lederman composed our theme music. If you missed any part of this program or you'd like to hear it again, subscribe to our podcasts. You can ask your smart speaker to play Science Friday. You can also email us, too. The address is sci at sciencefriday.com. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us.